0: Good morning, and welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Derek Fell, who is a writer and photographer who has produced over 100 books and calendars. Good morning, Derek.
2: Good morning. Uh, good to be with you.
0: Derek, I've seen your wonderful work everywhere, including the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. I oh, walked yeah. in there, and I saw that bright yellow sunflower in, against the blue background, and I said, I know that book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So where where else are you? You're in Monet's um, garden, too, aren't you?
2: Well, yes. Um, Just to explain the background, um, I was invited by the French Tourism Office to do a tour of uh, gardens on the Côte d'Azur, along the Mediterranean, and it was during that tour that I was introduced to Renoir's garden. And, of course, Renoir was one of the leading Impressionist painters, and I was struck by the fact that his garden uh, seemed to be an extension of his art. And uh, the uh, Côte d'Azur tourism office encouraged me uh, to do some research and produce a book, and that was the first of my books on the Impressionist painters, uh, Renoir's garden. And then the uh, same publisher invited me to do a book about all of the Impressionist painters called The Impressionist Garden, and after that, another publisher asked me to do one on Monet's garden, because they didn't think uh, that Monet's garden had been done very well, uh, principally because uh, people had not previously identified why his garden was considered a great work of art. And then, after that, uh, I decided to do Van Gogh, because uh, gardening was very dear to his heart. Uh, His youngest sister, in fact, was a garden writer in Holland. And uh, he would write to her, and he would not only uh, suggest color harmonies for her to plant in the garden, he would even name the plants uh, that he wanted her to grow in order to achieve those color harmonies. And, of course, he was very keen on vegetable gardening. Uh, He grew a vegetable garden in London when he was an art dealer. And, uh, of course, that led to his uh, painting, uh, The Famous uh, Potato Eaters. And um, uh, his uh, father had a garden, and he helped his father, who was a parson in Holland, uh, take care of that uh, one-acre garden.
0: I didn't know all that. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, and 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 that fascinates me. I, um, my, I'm of Dutch descent, and my dad and I went to Holland to go look at things, of course. Ah, yes. and, uh, and so, I but I didn't know that about Van Gogh. Um, well,
2: the I Dutch also, are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gardeners. And, oh, uh, they are. I, I've, I've enjoyed several visits to Holland, especially uh, to the wonderful tulip garden called Kuchenhof <clears throat>
0: Yep, and. People, if they have never been to Kuchenhoff, they would recognize it instantly because I think every photo in the world has the pictures of the big, broad paths of, of grape hyacinths and, and tulips yes. and
2: things like that. Daffodils, tulips, right. Mm-hmm.
0: Does it impress you that those flowers last as long as they do there? It, it, it did me until I actually was there in March and was getting snowed on. Uh.
2: Well, you know, um, that's actually the secret of longevity with their bulbs is uh, the cool uh, weather conditions in spring uh, Mm -hmm. that keeps the soil also cool. And so they last much longer than they would here in the States when we tend to get very hot days.
0: Yeah, you're right about that. Um, nearly, nearly did me in too, though, because my dad and I had to share one pair of my gloves because he'd forgotten his.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. It was
0: kind <laughs> of a fun trip, and and I, most of my Dutch friends, I think all of my Dutch friends and relatives have gardens, and they're very impressive to me.
2: Yes, indeed they are. Right. And,
0: and the vegetable gardens that they have, all the community gardens with the little garden houses and things like that.
2: Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, community gardens are very close to my heart um, because I grew up in England, and I had an uncle who had... A community garden, and when the strawberries were uh, fruiting, he would allow me to go and climb over the fence and help myself to those strawberries <laughs> and And that was one of the incentives for me later to get involved in gardening it, it, I just thought it was very cool that you could plant something like a bare root strawberry and then uh, three months later harvest a crop. <laughs>
0: Um, how old were you when you got started gardening?
2: Well, I was born uh, at the outbreak of uh, World War Two, and food was quite scarce in the area where I grew up, which was in the north of England. And I do remember my grandfather giving me some peas to plant, and he instructed me on how to plant them and uh, how to uh, create a, a small trellis with some spare lumber uh, that we had. And after about six days, I was delighted to see them sprout, and I watered them, and I kept the slugs off them. And uh, a couple of months later, I was harvesting the peas. And when I took them to my grandfather very proudly, uh, he made a special meal out of sauerkraut and uh, and pork. I remember that like it was yesterday. And that initially got me interested in growing vegetables.
0: How wonderful. So you've been doing this pretty much all your life.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, even when I lived in London, um, I, I worked uh, with an advertising agency there that had a uh, seed company as a client. And uh, my landlady gave me a plot of ground for me to have my own small patch. And. Uh, and so throughout if I had a year without planting a vegetable garden, I'd think I'd lost a year of my life, uh, quite frankly.
0: <laughs> I understand that, and I'm sure many of our listeners do do too, because once you get gardening in your blood, um, anything that interrupts it is just it, it's a shock yes. to the system.
2: Well, it's, no, went- it's it's very therapeutic. Uh, once you get your fingers in the dirt and you start creating something from seeds, um, it's very satisfying. It's almost a spiritual. It is a spiritual experience.
0: Yes, it is indeed. Now, how did you get involved in the photography end of it?
2: Well, um, I met a famous uh, British uh, photographer when I worked at the advertising agency on a seed catalogue over there, I employed this gentleman, his name was Harry Smith. And he was the leading plant photographer in England at the time. He was in his seventies and he's since passed away, of course. But anyway, I was, I much admired his work and I would sit down with him uh, in an evening after we'd done an assignment and he would explain to me uh, his system. And I bought the same camera and uh, followed his uh, advice. And then when I came to the States to work initially with the Burpee Seed Company, I, um, I continued uh, photographing, and then I started writing garden articles, and I found that uh, uh, editors were quite happy uh, when I presented them with a package of writing and photography. And so I'm self-taught, um, but uh, it's been a great pleasure to be able to pursue that, uh, that work, um, oh gosh, for 45 years now.
0: Well, for for being self-taught, you were a marvelous teacher. You had a marvelous teacher. I just enjoy the heck out of your books, and I used to recommend them when I was teaching garden design. I would recommend uh, them for, to my students, uh, and, and they were all
2: blown away. I well, think a lot must, of people... Go ahead. I'm so, I, I must explain that um, after I left Burpee, uh, I became a freelance uh, writer and photographer, and I, my first sale of photography was actually to Encyclopedia Britannica, and wow. um, uh, that, was, uh, that gave me uh, a, a tremendous uh, incentive, you know, to uh, become more professional as a photographer, and I had a neighbor, and uh, he had a beautiful garden, which I, he allowed me to go in any time I liked and photograph, and one day he called me up. And he said, Derek, I had Architectural Digest here photographing my garden, and they're not very happy with the photographs, but I know that you've got much better photographs than this guy took, so could I borrow your pictures and show them how the garden can really look? Well. Three months later, uh, I got a copy of the magazine, and here were all my photographs of his garden. (laughs) (laughs) And they offered me a contract, and for three years I had a contract with Architectural Digest where they guaranteed that they would use eight of my articles a year, and they gave me an expense account so that I could scout for gardens. And they sent me all over the world. I've been to Morocco, Scotland twice, Hawaii twice, uh, Bermuda, all over the United States and um, and many countries of Europe. And uh, uh, that relationship actually lasted until quite recently when they had a, a change of editor.
0: Yeah, there, um, unfortunately, a lot of magazines these days have undergone... A lot of changes and yes I I hope that what we're getting now is just a little blip and that it will return to its former glory in some shape or form
2: well you know uh, the digital age has changed a great deal and um, I feel sorry uh, for garden photographers today because it is actually very difficult to earn a living as a garden photographer Um, But uh, I actually produce a newsletter called The Avant Gardener. Uh, It's an online publication. And uh, 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 it's actually a publication that's existed for, oh, well, since 1964. And it became too expensive to continue it as a paper edition. So we converted it to an online edition. And if anybody wants to see it, uh, they can go to avantgardner.info that's a v a n t gardner.info and they can see a sample copy
0: that's and it's uh to
2: know. it's full of my photographs too they can uh, uh, i have a file of about 150,000 images now that i use uh, for my uh, publication
0: My goodness. I'm familiar (laughs) with the publication from years ago. We used to subscribe at the extension office uh, Ah, because there Uh, were always cool things to learn in it. And I thought it just disappeared. I am so glad to hear that it hasn't.
2: Well, Tom Cooper, who founded the magazine, uh, unfortunately uh, had a stroke, and he uh, asked me if I would continue it, and I took a look at the possibility and realized that if I converted it to an online edition, I could cut the expenses considerably. And um, and, and people don't mind their news in that form. I, I think, you know, there's a place for a paper magazine, something much more substantial like garden design, for example, or uh, organic gardening. Uh, because we do like to sit down and we like to uh, turn the pages and uh, have a kind of a, 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 a more intimate look look at an article. But there is also a uh, place uh, for an online newsletter uh, that you can uh, read for up-to-date news and uh, the latest research material. And uh, we try to be very selective in the news that we give. And... um, I've just, uh, for example, finished writing a piece about some new sugar maples that have been developed by Cornell University, where they've uh, doubled uh, the amount of sap uh, that you can extract uh, from a sugar maple in order to make uh, maple syrup, and also we give uh, we give uh, sources for anyone who wants to buy certain plants and, and, that, and that's an important part of the publication is actually presenting uh, worthy new varieties because there seems to be a lot of confusion every year as to what's worth growing and what isn't
0: we have to take a little break right now but we'll come back talking about your maple and also your involvement in the white house gardens and some of your other book we'll be right, Very good. We'll be okay. right back right after this this is dr george join me wednesday mornings for medicine on call And participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare. And learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system.
1: Quick stakes. That's. Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q U I K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now.
0: Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com,
1: the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and with me today is Derek Fell, who's a writer and photographer and also a vegetable gardener. And I really didn't know about your vegetable gardening until very recently, and it just blew me away. Uh,
2: well, uh, my vegetable garden is about the size of a tennis court, and I use it as a, uh, an outdoor studio because when I write about um, gardening, I like to have personal first-hand experience of the advice that I give. And, um, and so I use the garden to test um, uh, different kinds of fertilization, different kinds of irrigation, even deer control. And, um, and of course, I evaluate uh, new varieties of vegetables to determine uh, whether they are better than, uh, say, heirloom uh, varieties. And uh, I'm not a advocate of either. I, uh, there are certain heirlooms that I really like and continue to grow. But I'm always alert for anything uh, new and distinctive in the way of uh, vegetables.
0: Now, um, you've got a f you've got a whole farm, right? So you're a vegetable mm-hmm. cedar tell me about Cedar Ridge farm and and okay. you, you said the vegetable garden is about the size of a tennis court.
2: Yes. Um, Well, uh, I'm located in Bucks County, uh, Pennsylvania. It's a rural uh, county, at least the area where I am. Uh, The the farm is about 20 acres. It's quite historic. It was established in 1791 by Mennonite uh, farmers uh, who uh, used it as a dairy farm and a fruit tree orchard and um, I purchased it uh, a little more than 20 years ago uh, in order to have the space in which to continue my uh, experiments and aid uh, to writing books. Um, it's uh, quite beautiful here. We have four seasons. We're in the middle of beautiful four colors at the moment. Uh, we uh, last night had, had our first major frost, and, um, but during the uh, winter wintertime, um, I also have a place in Florida on Sanibel Island and so I can continue vegetable gardening during the winter months. And of course, I can grow tropical plants too, so that uh, a lot of my books can talk quite authoritatively uh, about southern vegetables.
0: And that's quite a contrast between Bucks County and Sanibel Island.
2: Yeah, well, yes. It, yes, it is. I mean, uh, right now I have about 15 banana trees fruiting. Um I have uh, 33 coconut palms. Um mango, papaya, lychee and even macadamia nuts. The macadamia nuts grow like weeds on Sanibel Island. It's been a, a, a an amazing revelation to me.
0: That's Fun. I, I fell in love with macadamia nuts on my first United Airlines flight, probably in 1950 uh, 60. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Remember those days when they gave you uh, macadamia nuts yes, <laughs> and do. real food? Right. Um, how wonderful that you can grow them. Now, were they there when you purchased your Sanibel Island property? or?
2: Well, yes, uh, um, I had been to Sanibel in the 1970s before it was uh, developed, but it's a very beautiful island. There are no high-rises. Three-quarters of the island is a bird sanctuary, and uh, my daughter had a destination wedding on Sanibel, and um, I got friendly with a real estate agent who took me around, and one of the properties that uh, he showed us appealed to me because it had an acre of ground sufficient for me to um, grow flowers and vegetables. And um, I've been working on it now for five years. And um, I'm going to have my first um, garden visit in January because the local garden club, has been after me to open it up, and uh, I feel quite happy now that i 've done enough to impress them <laughs>
0: <laughs> isn 't that the truth when you're when you 're a gardener and a passionate gardener, and people want to come in and see your garden and you always just want to say you should have seen it last week
2: <laughs> that's uh, always the story isn 't it yeah, I know. <laughs>
0: Uh, so um, we're, we're probably going to have to do two shows with you about to talk about tropical plants, too, because I know we have some listeners, well, we have listeners all over the globe. Um, tell me about your Cedar Ridge farm. What are you growing there, or what were you growing until the frost cut it?
2: Well, um, here at Cedar Ridge, um, you know, we have a cool spring, uh, we have hot summers, we have cool uh, fall weather, uh, we have quite severe winters, um, but uh, I can grow all kinds of cool season crops in uh, in the spring, and uh, uh, that would include English peas, for example, and spinach and lettuce, uh, and then we move into summer with tomatoes and peppers. Um, Uh, and uh, other southern crops like uh, okra, even, and watermelons. And uh, and then again in the fall, we finish up with a late planting of peas and lettuce and spinach and uh, kale, which is um, uh, a vegetable that has come on extremely strong in the last few years. I'm just amazed at how many people now uh, plant kale, when uh, maybe, um, you know, 10 years ago you hardly knew it.
0: Yeah, I was probably the only person that I knew growing kale 10 years ago. And now (laughs) there are just dozens of varieties out there and people are putting them in smoothies and muffins and everything.
2: Well, there are two books that I've seen, maybe three, uh, about kale recipes. And, uh, of course, I love a kale salad. I I chop the kale up very fine. I mix it with lettuce and um, uh, uh, other salad crops, spinach, with some bacon bits and stuff like that. And uh, it it, it makes a very nutritious and delicious um, fresh salad.
0: And what do you dress it with?
2: Oh, well, you know, I do like cheese dressings, um, especially a Roquefort cheese dressing. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent a lot of time in France, and I got used to Roquefort cheese dressing in France, but it's not generally available here in the States, so um, I I would use a blue cheese dressing as a substitute.
0: My father was a big fan of blue cheese, mm-hmm. you and he would have gotten along really well. Now, would you have a favorite variety of kale, since we're on the kale subject?
2: Well, uh, you know, I tell you, it's kind of interesting. I did a little experiment with kale uh, this fall, and I planted um, a, a bronze variety, which has very curly leaves, and... Um, I think it's called Russian red. Anyway, um, and then I I planted uh, the one called Toscano, uh, which uh, is sometimes called dinosaur kale because the Mm -hmm. leaf looks like a club uh, and it's kind of bubbly or blistered. Uh, And then I also grew um, the blue scotch kale, which is actually my favorite. And it's the one mostly used for say kale chips uh, which are delicious uh, incidentally. Um anyway, I grew all three of them and uh, a groundhog uh, actually got into that part of the garden and oh, no. uh, it was interesting to see what it ate. It it completely ignored the red russian and it mm. ate the other two. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Down to the ground. <laughs>
0: a very discriminating uh woodchuck groundhog my sister-in-law used to have terrible problems with ground groundhogs or aka woodchucks and yeah. she finally trapped one and and made it go away
2: <laughs> yeah permanently <laughs> well <laughs> my, my you brain. know I- I, I find that there are benefits sometimes to planting uh vegetables of an unusual colour. And um I I do um uh recall uh planting oh gosh, what were they? Um yellow watermelons at one time. And uh they um were very sweet, and then when I met with a watermelon breeder, he told me that in China, the yellow watermelons are, in fact, the preferred kind because they are felt to be the sweetest flavor. And uh, when I was head of the All-America Selections, the National Seed Trials, I actually introduced into the United States the first yellow watermelon from Taiwan, and at that time, it was called Yellow Baby, and it was good because um, it not only was yellow and sweet, uh, but it was uh, developed in a high-elevation area, and so it could tolerate quite a lot of cool conditions. So you could have a ripe watermelon with Yellow Baby when you couldn't grow any other kind of watermelon.
0: Then is Yellow Baby still available on the market?
2: It might be. I have found that if you want to find any kind of vegetable variety, all you have to do is a, a Google search. The, you know, you enter the uh, family name, uh, like melon, and then the variety name after it, and usually a supply will will come up, yes.
0: I was first introduced to yellow watermelons when I moved to Georgia in in 1981, and uh-huh. the farmer's markets would have yellow watermelon, and they would also have um, Cherokee moon and stars, or something similar to that.
2: Oh, and moon and I stars. First- yes, I've got a good story about that. Um, I, uh, I know that moon and stars is very popular, but for my taste, it's rather late. It's got pink flesh, and it's not quite as sweet as the red ones. But anyway, uh, quite recently, I discovered that a uh, company in California uh, took moon and stars, and they created a hybrid with it, and... uh, the uh, new hybrid is seedless, so there is actually hmm. a seedless moon and stars, and it's three weeks earlier than the heirloom variety, and you get a bigger crop. I mean, I normally get maybe two two watermelons from a moon, moon and stars vine, um, but this will produce like five or six, and it's called harvest moon.
0: Oh, that's something our listeners, I'm sure, will get, will like to know. And so will I, because I've kind of given up on growing watermelons because they are such a long season. Um, And even here in Georgia, sometimes if we have a cold winter like we did, a cold spring like we did this year, um, we just don't, the soil doesn't warm up soon enough to get a good crop of it. And of course, if you start it indoors a little early, um, Mm -hmm. by the time you're ready to plant, you know it 's gotten kind of over the hill, and you have to start yeah. new seeds because yeah. they just don't they don 't hold very well in a cup,
2: yes, well, you know um I did write a book for Rodale called Grow This, where I uh, uh, describe some of my favorite uh, varieties, and I give very specific uh, reasons why sh- why you should be growing. Uh, certain vegetables and uh, one good example uh, that I'll give you that's in the book is with regard to Swiss chard and um, uh, recently uh, um, oh perhaps about 10 years ago uh, a variety of Swiss chard called bright lights uh, won an all America award because it has 11 colors uh, in in a mixture it has uh, red, pink apricot, yellow, orange, striped varieties, and uh, it's also a very tender leaf, and I actually met the breeder in New Zealand, uh, a gentleman called John Eaton, who has recently passed away, and he was an amateur gardener, and he used um, uh, another variety called five-color chard uh, in his breeding work, he, and uh, it, it, so the, the, they are quite distinct uh, because five-color chard was actually used as a comparison uh, for bright lights to get an award. But in some catalogs, uh, the catalog description will say that, that uh, five-color chard and bright lights are the same thing, and that's not true. Uh, bright lights is a far Wait. more superior chard uh, than five we, have to take a little,
0: we have to take a little break right now, but we'll okay. come back and I'll let you finish that story. We'll be right All back right. after this All break.
1: Right. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick quicksteaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's stakes. Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now.
0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed
1: just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. This week I'm talking to Derek Fell, and right before the break he was telling us the story of bright lights charred and how it came to be and why it's different.
2: Yes, um, the uh, two uh, popular charts today are five-color chard and bright lights. Uh, But um, five-color chard, in my experience, uh, is not a stable mixture. You're lucky if you get three colors in it. Um, Whereas bright lights, uh, you're guaranteed to get... 11 colors because it's a formula mixture. The uh, seed company that sells bright lights uh, and and propagates it, um, they mix in uh, comparable amounts for each color so that you get a complete range of 11 colors. And also my tests have shown that the leaf is much more tender in bright lights than it is in five color chard. And uh, Uh, But still, you know, certain seed companies uh, uh, tell us that uh, they're the same thing when they absolutely are not. And that's why I wrote my book, as a matter of fact, because there are (laughs) a number of stories like that where um, certain uh, varieties... Really are inferior, but they are still sold uh, because perhaps they might have um, a good name or they're very cheap uh, to produce.
0: Tell me, tell me about some of the ones on your baddie list. What what don't you like?
2: On my baddie list, oh boy. Um, <laughs> well, let's take for example um, asparagus. Uh, There's a very good one right now called uh, Purple Passion, and a lot of people are not growing it because uh, they think that uh, asparagus uh, should be green. And um, a couple of uh, varieties that are very popular in the United States are Mary Washington and Martha Washington, and they're almost almost identical. It's just that one is maybe uh, three or four days earlier. Uh, than the other, but with uh, Mary Washington and Martha Washington, uh, they uh, produce both male and female plants, and it's the males that produce the best, most tender stalks. And so, uh, quite recently, Rutgers University developed um, a an all male asparagus uh, called Jersey Giant. And uh, that's the one that I recommend because you will get a more tender spear and you will be able to pick it earlier than either of the uh, Washington asparagus. But this purple passion is very interesting. It came out of Italy and um, I believe it's quite an old variety. And when you cook it, it does turn green. But what I've found is that it is two weeks earlier, even than Jersey Giant or the other uh, Washington asparagus varieties. Um, and to have two weeks' earliness in an asparagus is very desirable. And, and so I recommend uh, Purple Passion. And some of my Purple Passion uh, stalks, they're thicker than my thumb, They're, they're uh, uh, and even at that thickness, they're still very tender and delicious. In fact, Rutgers, I'm told, is using Purple Passion right now to try and improve their earlier hybrids.
0: That's interesting, and I, I think I must have gotten something that was just plain purple and not Purple Passion when I planted it, because uh. mine were very, very weak. Oh. And I kind of gave up on them, but I think under your recommendation I will give them a try again.
2: Well, uh, my um, mother was
0: a big asparagus fan.
2: Ah uh, yes, yes. Well, you know um, there are also I think um, a lot of uh, there's a lot of misinformation about uh, tomato uh, varieties, and um, in my experience, what everybody wants is uh, they want a big yield and uh, a large fruit, nice meaty flavor. And uh, the one that I recommend is called Better Boy, and it's a derivative of Big Boy. And the difference is that Better Boy does have disease resistance, and uh, it actually has the world record uh, for the most number of fruit on a single vine. Um, uh, a farmer in Arkansas grew 300 pounds of fruit on a vine uh, that reached 25 feet. Oh my. And uh, among, um, among tomato varieties, you've got a lot of heirlooms that are popular. And one of them is brandy wine. But For me, uh, Brandywine produces late. Uh, It doesn't produce a very large crop. Um, And uh, uh, in my way of thinking, it's a rather attractive tomato, but um, I can get much better production out of uh, Better Boy.
0: I agree with you with Brandywine. I, I do grow it almost every year just because just because it does have wonderful flavor. But in a year, like the last two, and we've had very wet years, um, the plants die before they produce. Yes. Um, yes. For an heirloom, I, I recommend, if somebody has not tried uh, heirlooms, tomatoes, I like Sasha's Altai. Have you grown that
2: one? Um, you know, uh, that came out of Russia, and yes, uh, I've grown a lot of the Russian varieties. Now, here's an interesting fact. That I learned when I was in Japan. Americans like their tomatoes red, all right? The Japanese like their tomatoes red, but they like them to have green shoulders. The Russians, they like uh, brown tomatoes, chocolate colored tomatoes. <laughs> So a lot of the varieties that come out of Russia are are a beautiful maroon color. And one of them uh, would be, um, um, oh gosh, uh, uh, I'm trying to think... Um, well, there are several of them, and uh, the names escape me right now. But um, a lot of the Russian varieties do have that maroon coloring, and, uh, I, and and for that reason, I do grow the Russians. But I'm not sure. Uh, is Altai, um, is that a chocolate-colored variety or a you red? You know, one?
0: It, it's um, kind of a pinky red, and it's fairly yeah. small. Okay. Right. Um, and there's a neat story about it, which I will post on our Facebook page, along with, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Tatiana's tomato base. She has a, Tatiana has a passion for growing tomatoes and has thousands of varieties that she has grown and given detail on uh, where they came from and who brought them and, and their growing yes. conditions and things like that. It's All just right. a wonderful, wonderful uh, place for, but, but if you go to that website, you have to plan on not doing anything else for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can spend days there. Um,
2: yes. Another uh,
0: another heirloom that I like is Cherokee Purple. Is that one that you grow too?
2: It's too late uh, for Pennsylvania. It's very good for the South, and that's the reason you like it, I suppose. Uh, but I've grown it here, and it just, um, it, it just ripens up too late in, in the northern states. Uh, I tell you, though, uh, my favorite heirloom of all... Uh, is sold under different names um, because what used to happen is you'd have one variety that would become popular in a particular area and seed companies at that time uh, could use different names to describe the same plant. Uh, but the one that it goes under most uh, familiar is um, is called Big Rainbow. Um, it's a very large beefsteak plant type uh, tomato that's yellow, but with red stripes, and uh, it's early enough, uh, the the fruits are big, and it's really not only delicious, but beautiful, because when you slice it, you have this beautiful red marbling all through the middle, and it's very attractive um, on a a salad plate, but that variety is also called... um, Uh, Let me see. Striped German is is another name for it. Um, Another name is pineapple. Um, The the whole raft of names, and in the C catalogs, they claim that they're different. But I'm sure that if you had a a gene gene test uh, done on them or a DNA test, you'd find that they're all the same because to look at them, They're identical, and they fruit at the same time as well. So that's my theory about the uh, bicolored uh, red and yellow tomatoes.
0: Well, I think I've grown them all um, by those different names, too, at one time or another. Uh, But you're right, they are a very nice tomato. I'm a little surprised. I thought Big Rainbow was a little bit later for me than some of the other bicolors. Most surprised. Well, a that,
2: that can do that that can be something to do with the soil, uh, whether it got enough moisture you know I mean uh, there are many variables that can cause a, uh, a, a plant and in fact, uh, with big rainbow it's quite variable in uh, in the color of the fruit because some of the fruit are almost entirely red, uh, others are almost entirely yellow, but the majority of them uh, would be an even balance of the two colors. And, uh, oh. and uh, you know, um, it, it's interesting with tomatoes because uh, certainly uh, the way that you grow them will affect uh, earliness. Yes. With, a to- with a tomato, the most important plant nutrient is phosphorus because phosphorus is responsible for flowering and fruiting. And a lot of people put too much nitrogen on their tomatoes, and that will slow the ripening down, because the nitrogen feeds the leaves. And you get which the Yeah, you get too much vegetative growth. So that's one point. You must have lots of phosphorus in the soil to get earliness and yield um, in a tomato. And of course, you have to grow the right variety. And uh, it needs moisture, plenty of moisture, good drainage. It needs calcium in the soil because without calcium you're going to get that disease called blossom end rot. Um, and you mustn't prune your tomatoes too much because if there's too much sun on them, they get sunscald, which is a kind of a white patch on the side of a tomato where it faces the sun. Um so, uh, yeah, you know, there's, there, there, there are many factors that will um, uh, influence the ripening of a tomato.
0: One of the problems that we have here in Georgia that is not was not a problem when I lived in New Jersey, and I assume it isn't for you in Pennsylvania, is that potassium washes through the soils very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And in our area, we if we don't add some green sand periodically mm-hmm. or other p- source of potassium, we run yeah. into problems with um, uneven ripening and things like that in our, yeah. soils, from our soil. Well, fields. you know,
2: yeah. um, another big problem in the south is nematodes, and Mm -hmm. I never encountered nematodes until I went to Florida and started gardening, and I found a very good way of uh, treating soil uh, that is full of nematodes, because they love tomato roots, and um, uh, normally you would be recommended to grow your tomatoes in a container, but I actually went to a community garden in Fort Myers, and I saw these uh retired farmers and what they did they put down a strip of black plastic over the soil and, and on i'm gonna top of have that-
0: to we're gonna have to hold this mystery oh. till the next good next segment <laughs> we'll be right back after this
1: break with all the back and forth in today's politics. It seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes, that's... Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick quicksteaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's stakes. Q-U-I-K stakes the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Derek Fell, who is just about to tell us what the farmers in Florida do for nematodes.
2: Yes, well, they put down a strip of black plastic. Uh, You can buy those in rolls from a garden center, and these would normally be about three feet wide. And they lay the strip of plastic over the soil and then... That acts as a barrier so that the nematodes can't come up from the soil into what's above the black plastic. And then the farmers, they put on six inches of compost over the black plastic, and they plant in the compost. And, of course, with that shallow depth of soil, you do need irrigation. But I have seen them grow the most incredible results uh, from uh, that practice of eliminating nematodes uh, from the soil,
0: that is absolutely amazing i that 's one trick to nematode. Um, taking care of nematodes that I haven't heard of. Um, One of the things that we did find here in Georgia, the university found that if you added a lot of pine bark, ground pine bark to the soil, that Mm -hmm. you could minimize the number of nematodes. And, of course, then there's the old trick of solidly planting marigolds for an entire season and then tilling them in. Yes,
2: I saw that practice in Japan. But, you know, diatomaceous earth also, I believe, uh, can inhibit uh, nematodes. But uh, they are so prevalent in sandy soil in uh, Florida that um, uh, really uh, it's sometimes difficult to be able to grow anything in the ground, um, and, uh, and you would have to resort to containers.
0: Well, I'm lucky here in my part of Georgia that we have clay soil, and it's not quite so much a problem.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank goodness.
0: That's one plague that we don't have. Okay. (laughs) Well, we have enough other ones. Now, I mentioned right at the top of the show that you've also been involved in something very special, and that's the White House gardens. And I bet our listeners are just wondering, when is he going to say something about that? Uh, So tell me, how did you get, because you've been involved in the White House under different presidents, too.
2: Yes yes I uh I have in fact um, the first president uh wasn't Richard Nixon I supplied the marigolds for uh the White House gardens when I worked at Burpee and I had a special tour of the White House gardens uh, uh by the uh, head gardener uh but then uh of course Gerald Ford uh succeeded president Nixon and he gave a speech called his win speech because he had a problem with inflation and he recommended people to plant vegetable gardens and save money. And uh, I was um, the head of the National Garden Bureau at that time, and I designed a model vegetable garden uh, on a small scale that people could save about $300 in uh, food costs. So I was invited by Gerald Ford to go to the White House and uh, consult with them on uh, vegetable gardens. And we actually designed a vegetable garden that was to be planted at the White House. But unfortunately, um, Ford found himself uh, involved in bringing the Vietnam War to a close. And uh, people around him decided that it would be seen as too frivolous for him to be seen planting a vegetable garden. And so although it was all set to go, at the very last minute it was decided not to do it. Uh, However, with that experience, uh, when um, uh, Michelle Obama decided to uh, plant a vegetable garden, she did it for different reasons. She did it for health reasons so that her family could eat um, uh, organic food. And so I wrote to uh, Michelle, and I suggested uh, ways in which to make that garden a success and one of them was to involve children in the garden. and uh, And of course, I'm delighted that she's continued to plant that garden every year. She's had tremendous success with it, and she's even produced a book uh, which I recommend to anybody.
0: But the part that I like best is about involving the children. We've got to get our kids back to nature, and I think it's and, and kids will eat what they've grown. Even if they, if you put it on their plate, otherwise they might look at it and go, ew. But, um, you know, when when they've grown it and they've picked it and they eat it, that's the crown. That is the crown, I think.
2: I always try to get kids
0: involved. And I taught a kids gardening program that ended up with a thousand children in four schools. Mm. And and now that program is grown so it's most of the schools in our county, and I think that's just terrific for the kids.
2: Yes. Well, you know, I was just reading a recent report from England where a uh, um, a, 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 a very important um, uh, member of the medical profession—in fact, I think it was the doctor to the Queen. Uh, has uh, done a survey um, and, and uh, discovered that people in hospitals who um, have plants around them or who cultivate a hospital garden uh, are going to spend less time in hospital. And he's recommending uh, to the government uh, to actually spend money to encourage more people uh, to plant vegetable gardens because it will keep the nation healthier and it will cut down on health costs. And now, since the United States has a health program, I think the U.S. government should do the same and encourage more people to grow their own food. Now, the USDA uh, probably wouldn't like that suggestion because they'd like farmers to be growing and feeding America. But I believe that the more people who do grow their own food uh, will buy more, Produce from farmers, I mean farmers markets in America have become a huge success i 've got about seven of them in my area, and I, I patronize them all and uh, and so that 's what I think the future holds for vegetable garden it 's a very, very rosy future
0: I certainly hope so because after watching the decline of home gardening. Uh, you know, which was, of course, in its boom time in the 70s and watching it mm-hmm. almost disappear in the 80s and 90s. I'm so glad to see more people growing and getting interested in food and healthy eating. And, yes. you know, and, and there's nothing like going out to the garden and picking your own yes. tomato or whatever.
2: Well, uh, you know, other- one of my recommendations to anybody is um, is is to make soup. And I have a wonderful recipe for vegetable soup. Um, Tell us about it. it. (laughs) Well, you go out to your garden and you pick everything. I mean, root crops like turnips and beets and carrots, uh, uh, potatoes, tomatoes, peppers, especially at the end of the season before the frost hits. And you get a big uh, five-gallon pot And you put it all in there and you add a bit of chicken stock or beef stock and boil it up for maybe an hour. Let it simmer after the first uh, boiling occurs. Um, Add some herbs like parsley and tarragon and uh, maybe rosemary, sage, just a a nice bunch of herbs. Put in some spinach for uh, greenery. Um, lima beans or just regular uh, snap beans that you've shelled. Um, and that makes an incredibly nutritious soup. And if you want to, uh, want to you can add some, um, you know, some uh, soup bones, like, like ham bones, and, and that will make it even more substantial. But you not only have soup that you can eat right away, but you have soup that you can freeze. And all you have to do is put it in the freezer, and you can have that uh, soup all wintertime. It's a wonderful way uh, to save extra produce from the garden.
0: And and in the wintertime, there is nothing nicer than taking a package of soup out of the the freezer and warming it up and maybe doing a loaf of bread to go with it. And you can remember all those summer flavors that you had.
2: And a, a, a nice glass of cider, hot cider. Um, with maybe a jigger of whiskey.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If it's cold enough, yeah, I I could go along with that, too.
2: That's my remedy for a cold, to ward off a cold. (laughs) It's called a hot toddy, by the way. Uh, And I got that idea when I lived in Scotland.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I do remember being told my dad's favorite minister was from Scotland, and he was big on hot toddies. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of a kind of a cool thing. Me, whiskey doesn't you know doesn't float my boat, but no. whatever works for people, it's just um, an acquired taste that I haven't yet. I guess <laughs> our family does something similar with soup. And do you have any um, warnings for people like uh, like I do? If if somebody is going to put beets in it, expect the whole thing to be red.
2: Oh, well, yes, although, you know, um, with beets, uh, you not only have the red beets now, you also have the golden beet, which doesn't bleed like a red beet. It bleeds, but it doesn't discolor the water um, uh, as much.
0: I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, and there's even a white, there's also a white beet, and uh, I think Rennie's Gardens uh, is one of the seed companies that actually sells a beet mixture so that you can have the red, the yellow, and the white all in one packet.
0: And there are also the striped beet because Rene also has Chioga, I think.
2: Oh, that's right. Uh, Chioga, that's an heirloom variety from Italy, and it's a beautiful beet because the uh, outside of the beet is almost red, uh, a true red, Um, and the inside, of course, is, is like a bullseye. It's got these rings of red and white, and it's very attractive. In fact, I saw just the other day in the supermarket, uh, they were selling beet chips, and uh, chioga was one of the uh, colors that they had in the, uh, in the in the beet chip mixture.
0: How fun. I don't think I've ever seen that. Was that at the farmer's market or a regular grocery store?
2: It was in a regular grocery store, yes, in an uh, organic uh, food store.
0: I will have to go looking for that. That sounds mm-hmm. like fun. Mm-hmm. You know, we've only got two minutes left of this show, Derek, and we've got a, still got a whole lot of extra ground to cover. But in this, yes. So we're gonna have to, you're going to have to come back. But in the meantime, well, in this last couple of minutes, I'd like to talk about where people can find your wonderful books.
2: Okay. Well, of course, Amazon sells them. They have a special area uh, of my books. But uh, the one that I heartily recommend at the moment is called Vertical Gardening. Because when you grow up, instead of out, you save yourself a lot of space, and that means you save yourself a lot of work. Um, so, uh, and, and Vertical Gardening is by Rodale, and if you go on the internet and just type in Vertical Gardening, a special site will come up at the Rodale uh, bookstore, and uh, you will be able to uh, read all about Vertical Gardening, because there are many varieties uh, special varieties that you can grow um, up uh, a trellis, uh, for example there 's a climbing spinach that lasts all summer doesn 't poop out in the uh, in the spring and um, uh, the, the, there are, of course uh, lima beans and pole beans and, uh, m- and and vegetable spaghetti will grow up a trellis and save you a lot of space and uh, For me, uh, vegetable spaghetti is one of the best uh, most, most worthwhile vegetables that you can grow because it's a wonderful, healthy substitute for regular pasta spaghetti.
0: It, it is indeed. And we're just about to the end of the show now, and your website is DerekFell.net, is that right?
2: Uh, yes, that's correct. That's my regular website. Um, I also have several thousand images that people can see on that website, uh, but the separate website I have is avantgardener.info, and that will take you to the avantgardener newsletter. I'll
0: be putting that all up on the Facebook pages for our listeners, and listeners, I hope you'll be back right next week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.